Today's reading is Matthew 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, Friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Earlier this year, Dan Price, who's the CEO of Seattle-based Gravity Payments, made national headlines when he announced plans to pay all 120 employees of his company a salary of $70,000. And to fund the raises for more than half of the company's employees, he took a cut from his $1 million a year salary to take a $70,000 salary. So the twist in the story is that not everyone in the company agreed with his plans to share his wealth. Two of his top employees quit in protest. His brother, who was a co-owner of the company, filed a lawsuit And other local companies complained that Price's actions made them look stingy. And they also suggested that new salaries could create resentment from the once higher-paid workers, and and some dismissed it entirely as just socialism. So what do you think of his decision? Was it fair? Was it unfair? Would you think of working for someone like Dan Price, who did something like that? It's interesting that Christianity Today picked up the story with this headline, 70,000 minimum wage brings Bible parable to life, unfortunately. (laughs) And they're referring to the parable that was just read to us today from Matthew's Gospel. And as you think about your response to the New York Times story, something that's just very current in today's headlines, I want you to reflect on a very similar story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, There's one underneath your seat. It's page 825 in those blue Bibles. We're continuing our series, our summer series, titled Short Stories by Jesus. We're looking at the parables of Jesus. And here's the guiding question. We've already heard the parable read to us, so I'm not going to read it again. But what is this parable intending to do? That's the guiding question this morning. What is this parable intending to do? 
And so what we're looking for is that we're trying to move beyond just meaning or beyond information. And here's why, okay? Here's why. Because Jesus frames all of his parables with a parable that he taught in Mark chapter 4. And we looked at that as we opened up this entire series on parables. In Mark chapter 4, he tells the parable of the soils. And he basically uses that as a, as, a, as a guidepost to understanding all the parables. And in that parable, he says that the parables that he is, te- he is using are intended to do two things. Two primary things. One, to reveal the kingdom of God. And secondly, to reveal the true condition of his listeners' hearts. So those are the two things that Jesus says as he starts to teach in parables that his parables are intended to do. To reveal the kingdom of God, reveal what that's all about, and then secondly, to reveal the true conditions of his listeners' hearts. So with those two things in mind, I'd like to look at this parable with you this morning. So now that you have Matthew 20 open, uh, just a couple observations of what we've heard read to us already. There are five, five groups of day laborers hired to work in a vineyard. They're hired at the first, third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh hour the 11th hour is 5 p.m. The, the, the work day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. back then. It was 12 hours. So you have people that are hired from the very beginning of the day all the way to 5 p.m., one hour before uh, time to stop. There's very little description. If, you, if you're looking down at the text, there's very little description about those hired uh, in the first four groups. That's verses 2 to 5 compared to the detail of the dialogue that's with the workers that were hired at the 11th hour, and that's verses 6 to 9. And it really suggests that, to me that there were, there's really only two groups that are in focus here. Um, there are those who are hired early in the day, and they are compared to those who are hired at the 11th hour. These day laborers were also paid a denarius a day. Now, I just had them put a denarius up there, an image of a denarius, uh, it was typical in this time period you would find the image of the emperor. There's Augustus Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and then you have, uh, you have Julius the Divine. So it, would, it was always, the coins were always in honor of them. And a denarius was what was typically paid for a day's wage for a day laborer. Okay? So it makes sense then that these people were hired to be paid a denarius a day. It was estimated that an adult in ancient Palestine needed about a half a denarius a day to live. So essentially, this is really subsistence pay. Um, an income of 200 denarius a year uh, was really the poverty level in Palestine at that time. You could barely uh, raise a small family on that amount of income. So because the poverty of the day laborers was so obvious, the Torah, the Israel's scripture, required that they be paid each day at sunset so they would have enough to live. And you can see that in Leviticus 19.13 and Deuteronomy 24.14 and 15. So with that background in mind as we read the story, what might Jesus have in mind as he's telling this short story? Well, some have suggested that this is a story about God's generous grace, about God's generous grace, based upon how the 11th hour workers are paid. But my question to you is, if we're looking at this carefully, is generosity really the focus here? Is generosity really the focus? Because no one in the parable receives a gift of grace. All of the workers work, and all of them are paid a wage. 
Although some who are paid at the 11th hour, right before quitting time, might see their wages as being generous. But if generosity was the focus, and this is the piece that really tipped it for me, if generosity was a focus, all the workers wouldn't simply be paid a denarius a day. That was subsistence pay. And anybody in the first century, when they heard this, knew that, that this was wages for people who lived just at the poverty line. So it's tempting to read our own assumptions into the story, and that's, that's a danger of being familiar with the Bible, as you've perhaps heard enough of it taught or preached, or you've read about it, and so you bring in your own meaning into it, and you import it, you lay it down, and you find what you expected to find when you come into the Bible. And that's why we have to continually ask ourselves these kinds of questions to say, you know, am I really allowing the Bible to speak and to say what it really should be saying, and am I doing the homework that I need to do to understand it? I think it's also tempting to come into it and to associate characters in the parable with Jesus or God or the Pharisees and to say, well, of course, the, the landowner is God and, you know, whatever. And we tend to do that in the parables. And what it ends up often doing is allegorizing the text when that's really probably not what Jesus had in mind at all. As I read the text, it seems to me that the parable simply focuses on the goodness of the owner and the complaint of those who thought they should get more for their work in comparison to those hired into the 11th hour. And you can see that there in the text. There's the goodness of the owner, and then there's the complaint of those who thought they should get more in comparison to those who were hired at the 11th hour. So what might Jesus be getting at? What is this parable intending to do? Well, if you look again at chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus begins by framing it with, the words, the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. And so he's saying this whole thing is intended to show us something about the kingdom of heaven. That's why I said Mark 4, remember at the beginning? That Mark, that Jesus frames all of his parables with two things that these are intended to do. One is to reveal something about the kingdom of God. And secondly, to reveal the true conditions of the listener's hearts. So here Jesus once again begins by talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, for those of you who might be new to grace, if we're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, the kingdom of heaven is not a place called heaven that we typically associate with people who die. The kingdom of heaven is Matthew's Jewish way of not offending his largely Jewish audience by using the sacred name, the divine name, which Mark and Luke do, and they say the kingdom of God. But Matthew refrains from doing that out of respect to his Jewish audience, but he is talking about the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? When Mark opens up his gospel, which is probably the earliest gospel, he says that Jesus came announcing the good news, the gospel, and then he defines it as the time is fulfilled, meaning everything that, was the, that Israel was supposed to accomplish in the Old Testament, that God was supposed to do through Israel in the Old Testament, has now found its climax in me. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says, turn and step into this new reality, step out of the reality that you have been inhabiting, and step into this new reality that is represented in who I am and what I'm about and what I'm doing. So when you read the Gospels and you look at Jesus, Jesus is not somebody who's just simply walking around trying to show his credentials for being God, but rather he's someone who's showing what the kingdom looks like, what it looks like, what the world looks like when God is in charge. And I'll tell you what, if you really want to, to liven up your own Bible study, read the Gospels and look at what Jesus does and ask yourself, is this 
not the world we all want. A world where there is no more sickness, where there is no more death, where there is no more poverty, where people are treated fairly, where you don't have people that are treated inferior, with an inferior rank and status to other people. All these things that we cry out are not fair in our world today. You look at Jesus and Jesus is upending the way things work in this world. And he's pointing to a time and a day when God will restore the world to the way that he wants it to be, the way he's designed it to be, and it will be the world that we all long for. That's why I have no problem talking to people about the good news, because it's not primarily about Jesus died for your sins and you can have forgiveness and I've got to convince you you're a sinner in order that you'll receive the forgiveness from God. That is not the gospel. Now, there are benefits, and that is one of the benefits, but the gospel is primarily the announcement that God has stepped into this world in the person of Jesus, and he has begun to set this world aright. And my, my announcement is basically, I'm telling them that a new reality has invaded this reality. Now, you may not be able to see it, but through Jesus, as you begin to know him, you begin to see that, yes, it is happening. So Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God and he basically is answering the question, what does the world look like when God is in charge? So what does Jesus want to reveal about the kingdom of God through this parable? Simply this, that the kingdom of God functions differently than we're used to in our day-to-day world. The kingdom of God functions differently than we're used to in our day-to-day world. The kingdom of God doesn't function with our sense of justice. And what is our sense of justice? Equal pay for equal work. Therefore, those who work less should get paid less. But in this story, the owner gives everyone the same wage because without it, those hired later would not have enough to survive. And that brings up this whole issue of justice. And justice is often our own assessment of what's fair, which is easily defined by whether someone has an advantage over us. And in this way, justice is defined from a self-centered framework. But the kingdom of God does not function that way. It functions according to God's character. The kingdom of God, notice that last part, of God, functions according to God's character. And God is good. God is good. Say that with me. God is good. All right, those of you who just woke up, let's do it again. God is good. That's fundamentally who God is. And that's what his kingdom is about. When he is in charge, his goodness is what permeates the world. His goodness is on display. Question for you. Was there any point this week where you became aware of God's goodness? You know, every breath that we take is a gift of his love. Every moment of our existence is because of his goodness. That means that everything that we have ultimately finds its point of origination in his goodness because he is the the giver and sustainer of life. So was there any point this week where you paused to acknowledge God's goodness? 
It's all around us. Your life is flooded with it because every breath you take is because of his goodness. And there's so much more that is because of his goodness. So what difference does this make? Well, it challenges our tendency to live on the basis of comparison. It challenges our tendency to live on the basis of comparison. Here's the second part. How the parables intend to reveal the true condition of the listener's hearts. See, in the parable, the first workers complain because they compare their wages to those hired at the end. And what fuels our own sense of what's just and what's unjust? It's our ability to compare. And this is in play in Jesus' parable. If you look at verse 15 of chapter 20, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And my ESV translation, which is what the Bibles that are sitting uh, under your seat, or do you begrudge my generosity, it literally reads, or is your eye envious? This is where the language of the evil eye came to be that, that was coined early on in, in early theology to talk about envy. Is your eye envious? Notice, what do we do with our eyes? We see and we compare with our eyes. Hence, the connection of envy with comparison. Francis Bacon puts it this way. He says, envy is ever joined to the comparing of a man's self. And where there is no comparison, no envy. In St. Augustine's Confessions, he lists the ways envy can be manifested. And listen to what he, how, what he writes. This is way back, all right? Envy can show itself in the following ways. Ready? Feeling offended at the talents, successes, or good, fortunes, good fortune of others. Selfish or unnecessary rivalry and competition. Pleasure at others' difficulties or distresses. Ill will. Reading false motives into others' behavior. Belittling others. False accusations. Backbiting, which he says is saying something bad, even if true, behind another's back. Slander saying something bad, even if true, in the open about someone. Initiation, collection, or retelling of gossip. Arousing, fostering, or organizing antagonism against others. Scorn of another's abilities or failures. Teasing or bullying. Ridicule of persons, institutions, or ideals. And prejudice against those we consider inferior, who consider us inferior, or who seem to threaten our security or position. When you begin to hear that, you begin to hear how much envy manifests itself in a variety of ways in our lives that maybe we're not even aware of because we've gotten used to, to living that way or responding that way. In her book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung unpacks envy in this way. Listen to her, one masterful piece of writing. She says, if we think about the people we envy, enviers don't usually envy those who are far removed from their lives and lifestyles or who are vastly more talented or successful than they are. They tend to envy people to whom they might actually be compared unfavorably, that is, those who are just like them, only better. For the person who defines himself by his career status and earning power, success is not defined in comparison to Bill Gates or Donald Trump but rather by making $10 more a month than his brother-in-law. As Aquinas puts it, we envy only those whom we wish to rival or surpass in reputation. 
She goes on to say, the envious want to be superior for their self-esteem depends on outranking others in the relevant field of comparison. Their own identity hangs on excelling others, but only those who threaten that identity, that is, those close enough to be compared as rivals. If we reflect on whom we envy, we are likely to discover how we define our own identity and where we see that identity is most vulnerable. Envy generally strikes in areas where another's superiority seems to threaten or lessen our own excellence and where that comparison leaves us feeling inferior in a way close to our identity. That's a masterful unpacking of our human condition. At least I thought it was. So you see, to understand how much we're prone to comparison is to understand how we envy and why we find it difficult at times to really be happy for the good that comes in the lives of others. So in the end, this posture of envy blocks our ability to love. Because to love is to seek others' good and then to rejoice in it, and envy undercuts our ability to love. One more quote from Rebecca DeYoung. To win at envy is to destroy the possibility of love between oneself and others and oneself and God. To be envious is to be determined to live in a way that precludes gratitude and contentment, love and happiness. Relationships of love are the only thing that will truly make us happy. The envious thus pursue happiness in a way that necessarily undermines their chances of having it. And this is, a goal, this is a piece of gold right here. Moving out of envy into love is analogous to making the transition from dating to marriage. The premise of dating includes needing to outdo the competition to win your lover's affection and secure the relationship. While the premise of marriage is that one is working from an already secure relationship into greater and greater love. Isn't that beautiful? And this is where the kingdom of God can reorient us because it gives us a new and true vision of who we are. It gives us a new and true vision of who we are. The kingdom of God tells us that we are loved already and we are loved unconditionally. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. Not because we are morally worthy, not because we are attractive or talented or successful, not because of all of our achievements, but simply because we are God's children. See, to be a follower of Jesus is to belong to God. To be a follower of Jesus is to belong to God. And he loves us out of his goodness, not because of our performance. That, my friends, is the greatest news you could ever have settled into your life. How much of our lives this week will be driven by our desire to perform? How much of our lives this week will be driven with an eye towards comparing ourselves to others who might be ahead of us? And I ask you, where is the kingdom of God in that? The kingdom of God settles you into the reality that I belong to God, that his life has come to me because of his generous grace, and it's not based upon my performance, and it never will be based upon my performance, so I don't have to perform to earn his love. 
He is good and he is loving to me. That's what the good news of the kingdom of God. And you know what? Once that begins to settle into your own life and it settles deeply in your own life and you begin to talk to other people about that, they will see that there's something that is deeply different about you. Because that's not just information. That's a reality. Either you have the reality or you don't have the reality that you really belong to God. That you really are his child. Listen to the words of John in 1 John 3.1. He says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. That is, that's the kind of thing you need to wake up with every morning. Instead of checking your email, go to 1 John 3.1 and read that. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. A self that's secure in its unconditional worth, a worth that is based upon God's goodness and love revealed in Jesus, is a self that is is able to affirm others' gifts without feeling threatened or made to feel inferior. It's a self that's able to take joy in its own good and in the good of others. It frees you to, to see the good in other people and to affirm that and to give yourself away toward that. And it frees us to take risks in loving others, knowing that we will not be diminished in any way. Thanks be to God.